A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. On this episode, I speak with Mary K. Greer, a renowned scholar, writer, and teacher of tarot. In this conversation, Mary talks about taking a Jungian approach to reading the tarot and teaches us how to identify and work with our individual personality and soul cards. If you've done any reading about tarot, I'm sure you've come across Mary's work at some point. She's written many books on tarot and magic, and it's an honor to have her share some of her knowledge so generously. As always, I'm grateful to my Patreon supporters who help to offset the cost involved with producing this podcast and who allow me the time to seek out and speak with teachers like Mary. If you'd like to support this work, you can subscribe to the podcast, share it with friends, or leave a review on iTunes. If you'd like to contribute financially, you can leave a one-time donation at paypal.me forward slash money is love or make ongoing contributions starting at just $1 a month by going to patreon.com forward slash medicine path. Every little bit helps. Another way to support my work is by purchasing a copy of my new book, Yoga and Plant Medicine, Integrating Yoga and Psychedelics for Your Healing, Growth and Transformation which is now available on Amazon around the world. I'll be doing some book readings in the coming months, and it would be really great to meet some of you in person. You can find out more about the book and upcoming events at my revamped website, brianjames.ca. Okay, that's all for now. Please sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with Mary Kay Greer on The Medicine Path. Hey, Mary, thanks a lot for joining me on the podcast today. Oh, it's really nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, my pleasure. So you've written a lot of books and articles on tarot, so you've been around a while. And I'd just love to hear how you initially became interested in the tarot. Oh, it was way back in the late 60s. I was in college, and my um, best friend at Christmas um, got a book by Eden Gray called uh, The Tarot Revealed. 
I was over at her house. We were exchanging what our presents were. And I looked at this book and realized that it was an opportunity to turn all these things that I was learning in college, um, archetypal symbolism, uh, the hero's journey by uh, Joseph Campbell. These were uh, kind of new ideas in the academic world, unless you were, you know, graduate student, but for undergraduate, bringing all this, this kind of Jungian stuff in was um, not usual. And uh, I was intrigued by it. So when I looked at the book, I realized that through these pictures and images that I wasn't familiar with, that I could had a way to see where all of these things were happening in a person's life right at that time. So uh, if you had mother or father issues, uh, there was the emperor and the empress and the kings and the queens and, and the tarot. Uh, if there, you were um, had a mentor, there was... Uh, the hermit and the hierophant or even the high priestess. So there were these different figures that appeared in Campbell and in Jung that um, the whole idea of archetypes um, that were actually pictured on the cards. And I knew enough about basic mythology to be able to see these mythic uh, threads there too. Um, I was also, a, um, besides being an English major, I was a theater major and we'd been studying the Oedipus cycle. And I realized you could go through the whole major arcana with the Oedipus cycle. And uh, the story, you know, the Oedipus complex where uh, he kills his father and marries his mother. So there it was all laid out for me. And in doing readings for people, as soon as I got a deck, um, I could see that, you know, where they were in their own cycle, where they were in their own issues and problems. The pages of the tarot uh, are children. So it's like your inner child in, in Jungian terms, the um, puer or the puella. So all of these things were accessible to um, the average life of college students because that's what I was and that's who I was around and reading for as I started out. So that was my beginning. Um, I, I did realize a few years ago that when I was in high school, Dark Shadows was on. It was a serial with vampires and witches. And there were several episodes that had uh, people reading tarot cards, but I had no idea what it was, what they were doing with it. They were usually really quick little things. But I think that stuck in my mind so that when I, you know, it's like this accumulation of little hints and of course, being the end of the 60s and going into my hippie phase, um, I, as one um, commentator on the whole lifestyle of the hippies uh, once said, you know, every uh, pad had to have its requisite tarot deck and reader. <laughs> <laughs> and that was me. <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah, I yeah. kind of fell into it and decided right away that that's what I wanted to do with my life. Wow. So... Uh, Right at the beginning, you were already making this connection between uh, Jungian or Campbellian archetypes and the major arcana. Yeah, that was the thing that kind of grabbed me because I, I was very much into the archetypal um, criticism of, in literature. And there it was in living form and personal instead of the abstract, you know, great writers of literature that were looking at their symbolism. Instead, I was looking at personal symbolism. So for me, it was just that, um, that personal connection. 
Also with the theater, um, there was a play, Tiny Alice, by Edward Albee that uh, our theater group did. And I realized that all the symbolism was there, too. And so that excited me because there was... I was running around to my professors going, oh, my gosh, do you see this? Do you see that? Uh, with all the symbolism, it was a very exciting time in my life. <laughs> hmm. And that first year, I decided I wanted to um, do, teach tarot as an academic subject in college, which meant I had to get at least a master's degree. So that led me to going on with my uh, education and um, uh, that someday I would write a book about it. Oh. I've written so, a bunch. Yeah. Now, I'm pretty familiar with Campbell's monomyth, The Hero's Journey, yeah. and the different stages of that, but I'm not familiar with the, the Oedipal journey. Of course, I've heard the story of Oedipus, but mm-hmm. I've never heard it framed as a, as a kind of journey. I wonder if you could give us a brief outline of that. Oh, gosh. I, I'd have to kind of go through the whole story. There's actually three plays, The Oedipus Cycle. So there's Oedipus Rex, Oedipus Colonus, and Antigone, his daughter, and what happens at the very end. So um, the first storyline is very much there in the first cards where um, Oedipus is born, and right away there is to a king and a queen, and there's a prophecy that he's going to kill his father and marry his mother. So they decide they have to kill this child and send him off into the mountains to be killed. And the person who's taking him cannot kill this little baby, so he gives him to uh, a shepherd. And uh, eventually he gets um, adopted by another royal family in the neighboring kingdom and is raised by them until there is a prophecy that he's going to kill his father and marry his mother. (laughs) And so he has to leave his home and his beloved parents. So we have that um, king and uh, the emperor and the empress. We have um, the hierophant and the high priestess as two sets of parents, a spiritual set of parents and a material set of parents. He, of course, um, can be seen as the magician. And so then we come up to six, which is the lovers. And at that point, um, one of the meanings of that is a choice, a crossroads. So um, he makes the choice to leave his, uh, what he thinks are his parents. And he's on the road, comes to a crossroad where he meets this old man in a chariot that won't yield the way to him. And him mm-hmm. being a young prince, you know, I yield to me. And so they have a fight and he kills this old man at the crossroads. So we've got the crossroads and then we have the man in the chariot and, or him in the chariot as uh, seven. And then we go to strength and uh, he arrives at the next kingdom where there is a sphinx. And oh. the sphinx is like a lion and <laughs> um, uh, amalgam of uh, several different creatures. And he has to answer the question, what walks on four legs in the morning, two legs in the afternoon and three legs at night? And the answer, of course, is man through the ages, child, adult, and an old person with a cane. And so that could be um, the the hermit, the next one. But the hermit is also Tiresias, who's been through uh, the storyline as the prophet. Um, And so uh, his reward for having um, solved the riddle of the Sphinx, who was keeping the land in in terrible condition, and and there was... um, a drought and all kinds of things. So all of that was taken care of by his answering this question. 
So as a reward, he gets to marry the recently widowed uh, queen of this, co- this country. And of course, that's his mother and the person he killed at the crossroads was his father. So they go along and at first are very fortunate and have several children. And then, um, so then we go on into the whole thing of, um, then there's another big drought and the prophecy is that um, there's been a, a murder. They have to find out who murdered the old king. So it's a great murder mystery. Hmm. <laughs> it actually is. It could be done at, you know, in modern times, there's this incredible murder mystery. So, yeah, he, um, uh, he has to solve this murder, and he vows that he's going to do that, that he's going to and punish the, the person who killed the old king. So, um, so where, does, said, where does that place us in the deck at this point? That's um, at, let me see, we've got the Wheel of Fortune where first things are, are very fortunate, but then there's the turnaround, and then justice, he, he promises justice, 11. Hmm. And 12 is when they find out um, that, uh, and 13, is that uh, he's actually the one who, you know, the whole story, his whole story comes out, and that he was the one who killed his own father. And it ends up with um, Joe Casta, his wife, uh, hanging her, herself and him blinding himself. So her death. And, um, and then we go, 14 goes into Oedipus at Colonus. And um, I'm not going to go on through all of it because it gets a little much more abstract after that because it's really into more of a philosophical journey of the uh, inner search uh, as he wanders around a blind old man being led by his young daughter and coming to discover um, what his role is and what this whole path is. And then his daughter is finally left uh, having to um, find a way to um, bury all of the children uh, of him and and ultimately it will be herself. you know, because of the tragedy and the, the kind of um, way they're looked down on. They're not allowed to be buried in consecrated ground, so to speak. Mm. So we've got judgment, we've got, and then an apotheosis where, you know, it's kind of an ascent into heaven with the world at the very end. Wow. Yeah. Uh, did you write about that in any of your books? I will be in this next book I'm working on, A Young ah. Man Approach to Tarot. Okay, great. Yeah, it sounds like a really kind of juicy storyline to overlay on the cards. Yeah, I haven't gone back um, over it in years, so that's one of the tasks that I have to do in rewriting. Yeah. Go through all the very specific concrete things, but it's just so archetypal. When you say, um, did one influence the other? No, I, I, I don't believe it, but it's a perfect example how in culture after culture, we find storylines that correspond with the cards in the major arcana. And that's what's so amazing and why there's so many decks that are done based on different cultural constructs and mythologies. Yeah. And you find this, they still work because they're still, they're, they're all springing from the same source. Yeah, uh, and that that source is kind of, um, I mean, nobody knows for sure defining it, but it's sort of like a DNA thing in the very deepest level of um, our being. And, of course, in, in Jungian psychology, you can't touch or point to an archetype because an archetype is a, an amorphous tendency 
to something. I kind of call it the the cookie cutter of the psyche. Um, And what we see are archetypal images, which can be in thousands of different forms. Hmm. So it's like this amorphous tendency tends to um, meld with certain themes and form and and a lot of them have to do with our biology, like the mother complex, the father complex. So archetypal mother-father, which also correspond in some ways with the archetypal king-queen ruler uh, of a country. And the wise old man, wise old woman, and the roles that they have a tendency to play. So uh, they're uh, things that are just at the very root of our social and personal beings. Mm-hmm. and our biologies. Now, what was Jung's interest in the tarot? Did he uh, ever do any writing on the tarot himself? I, I think I read somewhere that he had some of his uh, apprentice analysts go off and study different esoteric disciplines and, and make a report on them. And yeah. maybe it was in one of your articles where I read that he had a couple of his analysts in training study the tarot but Mm -hmm. did he how far into it did he get we don't know personally about him um because there's only a half a dozen references to tarot and um by jung himself actually less than probably less than six um and they're very brief so he points out the the devil and the tarot and some of the archetypes that are related to that. He um, he points out that yeah they're they're there, um, primarily because some of the other people that he worked with had seen some correlations between uh, the archetypes in the psyche, and had spoken either to him directly or given lectures on it. Um, and I've looked up some of these lectures. Some of them are in German, and I don't read that, but. Basically, they're they're extremely basic, mm-hmm. and all their history is always wrong. So whenever he mentions, oh, it came from Egypt or the Egyptians, it's like, no, discount that. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it's kind of as if during the time that he was noting this, he was very much into alchemy, and that would have been a distraction from it, and also astrology, which he didn't talk about as much, but he was also doing so it's like there's 24 hours in a day and you have to sleep during part of it. So I know myself, there's always these choice points of, you know, this tarot is intriguing and I'm going to mention it. And there's these really fascinating connections that he mentions very briefly, but you know, he never had time to look at it further and he didn't really have a good guide himself to point out, I think a more in depth interpretation. But when he picked the uh, five women who were actually all analysts themselves, they'd been trained by him many years before. Um, And his idea was that somebody would go to each of them, one would be an astrologer, one of them would be a geomancer, one of them would be, um, oh, um, I don't remember all of them, tarot, Um, there was one or two more. And they would each do a reading for the person, and then that would all be gathered together as kind of a big overview of that person's um, relationship to archetypes and and the psyche, and uh, that it would be another dimension of the psychotherapeutic practice. Hmm. But it was towards the end of his life that he came up with this idea, and there were a lot of other things going on at the time. Man and his symbols was being written, and uh, several of the people were involved in that. 
So it kind of fell by the wayside mm-hmm. and nobody picked it up. There's a, uh, two sheets of paper where the person that he had picked to do the tarot had taken notes from him and their brief um, meanings based on Papus, who was a French tarot author, wrote Tarot of the Bohemians in the English edition. And um, so there's like one-liners from Papus and then um, a couple of hints of aspects of the psyche that it might be. But for instance, with the four suits of the tarot, the wands, swords, cups, and pentacles, which can be related with fire, earth, air, and water, he never made the connection in in his notes on those suits, which are a couple of words each, um, uh, to there being his four functions. And that is intuition, thinking, feeling, and sensing. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, everybody today immediately makes those associations to the four functions, partly because of the Myers-Briggs uh, personality inventory that uses those as kind of a baseline. And um, But he didn't make that. He came close. <laughs> but it, it's kind of like they talk about how the wheel was not actually used in Egypt, although they had wheeled pole toys for children. But they used drag things. Then they never actually developed full carts or chariots. Those were um, imported later into Egypt, even though they had children's toys that had wheels for moving toys. Um, And so there's these, sometimes there's these lack of connections where there's this near miss. So it's fascinating to see Mm -hmm. how he got certain ideas and, and connected with those immediately with the tarot and then left these other totally obvious ones like the Oedipus cycle (laughs) and, you know, didn't make that connection. Yeah. Well, you know, I've never heard that connection either. Um, So I'm really excited to to read what you write about it. Uh, It just seems like a kind of really rich uh, storyline to draw from. Um, So now when people are talking about a Jungian approach to tarot, Mm-hmm. This must just be an extrapolation from Jung's teachings uh, because it doesn't sound like he really went that deep into uh, analyzing the tarot. So uh, how, how, how do you take a Jungian approach to tarot? Um, lots of different ways, but one of them is um, the deep interest in mythology, looking at how myths and folklore uh, correspond with different psychic states that we have um, and how you can see those themes being played out in the individual. So as soon as you start associating uh, particular myths or aspects of myths to the different cards, you've got an idea of how that archetypal mythic um, storyline is working in your life. And once you see that, you also have a sense of if you don't work work it very deliberately, that it's probably going to progress along that same line. So it's one way of forecasting the future. You know, you're obviously working in this line, and if you keep going exactly as you have been, uh, this is where the story goes, and therefore some aspect, you know, metaphor, metaphoric aspect of that is the direction. It's kind of like you're on a train track, and that's where the train track is going to head for towards. Um, but everything works at a different level because metaphor is more abstract than the literal. 
And so one of the things that you can do is work with the um, metaphoric level in order to um, use that energy, but not have it necessarily work out in killing your father and marrying your mother. <laughs> you know, what does that mean psychologically? Mm-hmm. What do you have to do in terms of, um, you know, killing off some of the masculine aggressive energy and embracing more of the feminine energy? Or, you know, what, what do you do if you do that too much, <laughs> where, you know, Oedipus ended up blinding himself? So all of these kind of have metaphoric illusions. And if you work and uh, to understand and integrate the metaphor, you don't have to live out the, the physical in mm. quite the same way. Not that everybody's going to go in, out and kill their father and marry their mother. But um, the understanding, finding the meaning in it transforms the whole experience. So it allows you to um, change the vibrational energy level that you're working with in terms of uh, a myth. Okay, that's one level. And, of course, all the Jungians love to write about the myths and the psychological significance of them. So we've got Marie-Louise von Franz and many, many more that, um, you know, go through very specifically and show us how to work with these um, myths and the symbolism in them that we find on the cards. So it's like you can follow along and go, oh, that symbol, that symbol, yes, and that one, oh, that's part of a sequence. Uh, the Tower is the Rapunzel fairy tale. Um, Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let down your hair from the tower. And eventually um, she gets thrown out of the tower as well as her, her lover. Her hair gets caught and he falls uh, to the ground. So you can follow that myth hmm. through um, different things. And what does that mean to be in the tower and to be isolated and to um, you know, go through and the whole thing with hair? You know, what does that mean? So um, that's the mythic level. The other level uh, is the map of the soul uh, or the map of the psyche. And that is where Carl Jung identified different parts of the psyche, both the conscious and the unconscious. He was kind of a pioneer of the realm of the unconscious. And a book that, um, that was his journal was published a few years ago called The Red Book, which is the account of his inner journeys, his inner uh, pioneer exploration of this unconscious realm. And you can go through and take your notes in tarot tees, as I call it, identifying different figures in his encounters with beings in the unconscious uh, as figures in the tarot. So you can see those parallels. But his map talks about um, some concepts that had been there with uh, prior um, prior uh, psychologists uh, that he then developed further or modified to fit his own pattern, like there's the ego. And the ego isn't being egotistical. The ego is the me, myself, and I. Um, you know, I want to do this. I choose to go there. Um, you know, I am a teacher. I am... Um, uh, a, a podcast <laughs> announcer, um, interviewer. Um, all of those things are what the ego says and does. Um, and so it's our sense of uh, basic sense of I. And we're working towards expanding that sense of the ego into a much larger, greater sense, which, which you call the self. And an aspect of the self, it can be seen as kind of a God self within ourselves because it has um, far greater awareness and, um, and, and power to transform and change 
uh, our experiences in our lives. So, um, and then there's the persona. The persona is the mask, uh, because that's a Greek term, which means mask and was part in the Greek um, theater, that uh, it was the mask that people wore so that you could tell what part somebody was playing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's uh, the, the part of ourselves that we present to other people. And interestingly, the um, uh, K-pop, the Korean pop group, uh, BTS, their latest album is called Map of the Soul Persona. And all the songs on it are based on Carl Jung's ideas about the persona and how, what it means to be an idol, where that's how people know you is only through these masks and, you know, what it takes to keep those and present those and the responsibilities and so on. So they really glommed on to that. Um, but understanding how that's different than the other parts. And then you go into the unconscious and we have ideas that people are very familiar with, uh, like the shadow. Well, Carl Jung was the main person who developed the idea that there is a shadow part of ourselves, which is something that we can often see in other people, but we don't recognize in ourselves. So things we blame other people for, and sometimes things that we admire in other people that we think are not in ourselves. That's called the bright shadow. And then there's the dark shadow, which is um, uh, whenever you say, um, you know, oh, that person talks too much. And your friends are kind of looking at you going, yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> that person, you mean you? <laughs> um, but you don't, you don't recognize it or see it. So one of the big tasks in Jungian psychoanalysis is to um, meet your shadow and to, which is many aspects of the shadow, many, many aspects, and come to uh, recognize those parts of yourself. So that's what Jung was doing in part in the Red Book, was meeting these different figures in the shadow. And so you've got a mother and father complex, which are based on your relationship with mother and father figures in your early life, that still keep commenting in your own head about things. And you don't even realize that that's not why you... um, or that's why you didn't go on to uh, get a doctorate because your father always said you could never make anything of yourself. So there's that inner voice, even if your father's no longer alive, saying those things. And um, so those are part of that shadow realm and aspect. And the inner child, um, that as you grow up, you tend to leave behind and forget the playfulness and the, um, the creative aspects that are there in the um, the child. Um, and then there's, there's many other um, aspects and things that are kind of there in almost everyone. Everybody is a racist in some way or another. All the people say, oh, I'm not racist. Immediately, you know, there's shadow issue there. And if you want to explore that and you go deeply into it and come to understand what that means in your own life, then it opens so many doors and makes you more compassionate with other people. Hmm. Um, You know, it may not look like what we first think of when we think of racism, but when you really delve into it and take away the layers of it, you come down to a deep place in yourself where there's often shame and fear and obsessions. And those are all the things that can be um, opened up and befriended. It's not that they're cleared out. 
it's you have to like in the strength card where the maiden is um embracing the lion in in some way there there's that relationship between them it's learning to embrace the things that most terrify you and come into a relationship with them a meaningful relationship and meaning is a big thing in, in Jungian psychology. So I went on and on. I'm sorry. Um, add whatever your insights are to that. No, I, that was great. It was just nice to hear you kind of go through it. Um, so I'm just trying to get a sense of how you would work with that in a tarot reading. Is it a matter of having an understanding of, of Jung and the way he approach the psyche and the archetypes and, and all of those different aspects that you just talked about, having that understanding will enrich the way that you read the tarot? Yes, definitely. Mm -hmm. And you can also um, create or use a spread that is the map of the psyche. Uh, okay. And therefore draw cards for those different aspects. Or you can take some of the um, work that's been developed around shadow work and turn that into a spread to explore either in general what's you know the biggest shadow issue that I need to look at right now, or to explore a very specific one like that idea of uh, we are all racist in some way. You know, create a spread, or there's many in, in uh, books that explore this kind of thing where you you have specific positions that uh, take you deeper into what that actually means. So you can start out yeah. with looking up a definition of racism and taking the, the pattern or definition that's described on Wikipedia or on a, a Jungian site um, and, you know, go into, turn that into a spread and then draw individual cards to see how is that pattern functioning in your life. You mm -hmm. can take a myth and create a spread around a myth. So, oops, sorry. <laughs> it's the house of the rising sun. Yeah. My parents played that at their wedding. Oh, was, how wonderful. <laughs> well, interesting song uh, to play at your wedding. Yeah, yeah, with the storyline. Yeah. My, my mother, grandmother, great-grandmother were all from New Orleans, so uh, it's always been a favorite, even yeah. though, yeah, all the storylines. <laughs> but my, my great-grandmother uh, read tarot, uh, not, I don't know if it was tarot cards, she read cards for people in New Orleans, so. Oh, really? That's a little bit of my heritage. <laughs> okay, so um, in your in your book, who are you in the tarot? Yeah, you introduce the idea of personality and soul cards. Mm -hmm. Now, is this something like how you're talking about how to work with Jungian ideas and concepts with the tarot? Is we we break out like these two aspects of ourselves, the soul and the personality or the ego. Yeah. And there's also and then, a shadow card, or, which I also call your teacher card, because Jung said our shadow is our greatest teacher. I was going to ask if there was a corresponding shadow card, because yeah. that, would, that would be the, uh, the triumvirate, right? Yeah, and it sometimes is integrated within the two, because uh, some people just get two cards. So, uh, a few people get three cards, so... Yeah, um, I'd have to explain how to do it in order to sort of see what I'm talking about. Yeah, Yeah. well, that was a new idea for me that, that we would have a personality and soul card. And I wondered if um, we could kind of go through using my, my birth date 
and mm-hmm. give people an idea of how to find their personality and soul cards. And then once we determine that, then what do we do with that? Exactly. So it's going to give you uh, one to three uh, tarot cards, major arcana cards that are personal to you based on numerology, on your numbers. Uh, It's not an exact fit with numerology, but it's very close. So um, Mm -hmm. give me your month, day, and year of birth. So I'm uh, December, so 12, Mm -hmm. 8, 1974. 1974. So I'm writing it down as I would a child's uh, mathematics prog- uh, problem where we've got the 12 at the top, um, eight underneath the two, and then at the bottom, 1974. Um, so, and we add those, those three numbers together. So eight plus two is 10, plus four is 14. And seven and one is eight, plus the carried one is nine. And then we've got, um, bring down the nine and the one. So we've got a a four-digit sum, which is one, nine, nine, four. Mm -hmm. So we now add those across. That's called theosophic addition, where you add a number across, um, like numerology. And so one plus nine is 10, plus nine is 19, plus four is 23, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And then you add the two plus three and you get five. Now, so. if, if that number, if that sum was less than 22, would we just stop there and use the card that that corresponds to? If you, uh, if the number was 22 or below, you both um, stop there and you uh, add it in order to get uh, another number. So uh, the 22, there's no tarot card numbered 22, but the zero fool card is the 22nd major arcana. So we use that um, as the fool. And then you add two plus two and you get four. And so that's the case where there's two cards, the the emperor and the fool. So the first number is that the personality card and the second number is the soul card? Yeah, uh, going along with the technique and numerology, the single digit number, the final result, um, when you get down to a single digit is always the soul number Mm. or the soul card. And then any numbers that you get above that are your personality or in special cases, your soul. I mean, your shadow card, shadow teacher. Okay, so my son was 23. So I have to, there's no corresponding card. So we add those two numbers together, two plus three. Exactly. So we get five, five, which is the Pope or the Hierophant. Uh Uh-huh. And so that's both your personality and soul in the technique that I first learned from Angeles Arian, who also wrote a tarot book. Um, And I studied with back in the 1970s. So, um, yeah. But there's also another number in the major arcana that would add up to five. Only one other number. And that would be what? What other number would add up if you add the two digits to a five? 14. Yeah. One plus four equals five. So 14 is what card in the major arcana? Oh, now you're testing me. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I am. (laughs) Help me out. I don't have all the well memorized. It's okay. Yeah. So we've got uh, temperance and you've got the hierophant. So because you didn't get temperance or the number 14 directly, that means it's indirect. It's not seen 
and therefore it has that shadow quality. So the temperance can be the shadow aspect of the personality-soul combination of the Hierophant. And that's really interesting because the Hierophant, um, I mean, there's pages on this in my, my books. So, um, you know, to, to bring it down very tight, uh, the Hierophant is about teaching and learning. And it, you think of school teachers as well as priests and, you know, popes and, you know, uh, gurus, spiritual teachers. So it's all of those levels. It follows the emperor, which is the um, material realm uh, ruler. So next is the spiritual realm ruler, but it's also the teacher who passes on the cultural constructs uh, that allow us to live in the realm of the empress and the emperor. Mm. So the hierophant makes us uh, fit in to the shoulds and oughts of our culture and society. And that's both religious as well as all the, you know, uh, basic education that makes us, you know, fit into our, our society uh, world so that we don't go around free, uh, flipping everybody out. Right. Like a moral and spiritual ruler. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. And if you think of it as shoulds and oughts, then one of the struggles for people with a five is figuring out how things are supposed to be. And the pattern of what should I do in this circumstance and having to work with that. The shadow card, temperance, is there with these two uh, vases or, or vessels and pouring from one to the other actually diagonally and water does not pour diagonal so it's very interesting that it's uh it's more like it would be an essence or some kind of energy that's being poured back and forth and if you kind of mimic that pouring back and forth it's very flexible and it flows and in some of the decks there's a cauldron underneath so it's implied that there's uh being um some kind of elixir being mixed so some kind of healing process that balances out the hormones and the temperaments um, of, of someone. Very contrary to the energy of there's a way you should be. Mm-hmm. Instead, it's a dance of how do you find what actually works? How do you find the right mix that might be very unique to you rather than what society says you should be? So as the shadow, it's the things that when you're very young, you don't get very easily, but usually around your Saturn return, because in astrology, they say Saturn is where you begin to accept the realities of life, realities of the world. And um, that's when um, the teacher aspect really comes in of what the, the shadow is trying to teach you. So people begin to be more flexible following that um, uh, around 27 to 29 years old is when you usually have your Saturn return. And that's when you begin to ironically accept those shadow parts in yourself. Or if you're really stubborn, you continue to fight them and that becomes a bigger issue for you, a major yeah, life that, issue. That's the story of my life. Uh, it be, became big issues when I was about 35 uh-huh. And uh, then 
you know, the past uh, 10 years have really been about going into those shadow aspects and uh, having my own battles with being judgmental, um, mm-hmm. you know, thinking that people should be doing things a certain way and all that. And more and more coming to a, a place of equanimity. And uh, yeah, that's very interesting. Very yeah. interesting. Yeah, I actually lived with um, a household of related family members that had, well, they lived in an apartment upstairs, and there were four of the five people living upstairs were single fives, and my daughter was also. <laughs> and so I was surrounded by these these people, and you know they would have battles as to which drawers things should be put in in the kitchen and cabinets, because which was right. And, you know, I go, there's no right or wrong. It's what works for you all. But there's a right way to do it. I'm going, no. And my daughter's kindergarten teacher said the same thing. She says, you know, Cassie's only problem is that she um, doesn't want to really try something out until she can do it right. And so I kind of tried to work with her. And she still has a, a bit of that. But... You know, from that point on, I tried to kind of loosen up and bring in little hints that there were more options than just a single <laughs> right or wrong, and that it was perfectly fine to make mistakes. Yeah, when my wife hears your anecdote about the kitchen drawers, she's going to have a good laugh because that sounds <laughs> sounds a little familiar. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and really, it's whatever works, not what it should be. Yeah, so um, yeah. we all have an aspect of the Hierophant and the temperance in ourselves. It's just that there's kind of this life theme. And when I was doing the uh, book, Tarot Constellations was the first version, and then um, it was, uh, came out in a new edition called Who Are You in the Tarot? And uh, part of that idea, oops, I just lost it. Um, Talking about yeah, having that, that like primary card for your life, uh, and that, but actually everybody has all those aspects within them. Right. But for somebody that has this as a major theme, it's interesting that when I was doing Tarot Constellations, I went and looked up the um, birthdays of all these famous people and read a whole bunch of biographies and biographical statements. And what I found, actually, it wasn't so much in the biographies as in the autobiographies, where people at some point in that autobiography would say, you know, my, um, the thing I had to work with my whole life or the, the major theme that inspired me through my life. And almost always where there would be finally one of these personal statements where somebody recognized a major theme, it would correspond exactly with oh, their wow. personality and soul cards. Hmm. And I kept finding that over and over again. It was so exciting when I would find those. And usually those are missed in the um, biographies unless somebody happens to find, you know, a statement by the person and and actually realize how important that statement was. Uh, But it's almost always there in an autobiography somewhere. Hmm. So once we found our personality and soul cards, how do you recommend people start to engage with that? Is there like a process of inquiry that you would take people through or suggest? Yeah, the main thing, of course, you can look them up in, in a book, but that's only going to take you so far because uh, it's the books are usually aimed at 
doing interpretations in the moment for particular situations. But it, it gives you overall themes to think about. But the really important way to work with it is a Jungian technique called active imagination. And it's been developed since Jung, um, you know, through the 60s and 70s in uh, dialoguing techniques. So that's uh, the easiest way, preferably a written dialogue, um, where you put the card in front of you and you address the card and say, ah, well, you know, I've discovered you're my soul card. You know, uh, what do you have to do with me? Uh, what lesson do you want me to learn? Uh, what, you know, what do you have to tell me about my life path? These kinds of questions. And then without thinking about it, usually I do timed writings when I do it in a class with people, is um, because you write without stopping. You don't want to think. You want to just write the very first thought that goes through your mind and get it down as fast as you can. Forget grammar, forget spelling and, and punctuation, and just get it down. Some people can actually write with their left and right hand and will uh, have one hand for one voice and one hand for, you know, the, the I, the ego, and the other hand for, um, you know, the, this particular card image. And you have the figure, you have a dialogue with the figure. And it might start asking you questions and, you know, taking you deeper into, you know, well, what did you do when such and such happened or, um, you know, uh, whatever, you know, you never know what they're going to ask. Mm. But it, it should be a back and forth conversation. And you can continue doing this every few years, you know, sit down and, and do 20 minutes of writing like this and all kinds of deep, surprisingly deep things will come out. Also notice that if you do this with writing without stopping and just going through with your very first thought, your handwriting will actually change. And at certain points when it changes, it's like you've dropped to a deeper level hmm. and you hear more of a truth. So you won't even see this or, or understand it until you look later and look at what you've written and where those those points come. Often they come at a point where, let's say you're doing a 20-minute timed writing, and 10 minutes in, a voice says, well, you know, there's really nothing else to talk about. And you can write that down. There's really nothing else to talk about. And um, But if I was to go on talking, what would it be? And, you know, at that point, the figure on the card might jump in and say, you know, well, let's talk about such and such. So the, the trick at those points is that you've reached a resistance point mm. where your regular conscious mind is saying, there's no more, nothing else here. You don't <laughs> yeah. need to go anywhere. Yeah, and I'm it's good. almost like a barrier. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and if you say at that point, you know, I choose to go on, there, there's more and I'm going to keep writing, it's sort of as if a door opens. Mm. And I usually recommend that you at first go through one or two doors and after that it's fine to stop. And then, you know, if, if you continue doing this, you'll find that you can go through more doors because some of those doors are there to protect something that's not ready to come out. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things with Jungian psychology and using some of these concepts as a reader is to be aware that, um, you know, a lot of the mechanisms that we have are protective mechanisms. And uh, if, you know, as a tarot reader, if you're not a trained therapist licensed, then you really need to um, go very gentle and not push anybody past um, barriers that 
you know, you can kind of nudge a barrier, but don't push through it. It's, it's not appropriate in, um, you know, 15 minute to an hour tarot reading. You really need to be a professional to, to go yeah. to deeper levels. That's what I was going to actually come around to asking you about is this line between uh, being a, a tarot reader or astrology consultant and being a therapist. And mm-hmm. often it seems to me like those lines get really blurry for people. I'm just yeah. wondering what your view on the ethics of reading tarot is. That's up to each individual and their own background and their calling. Um, so a lot of the non, you know, academic, non-trained techniques come through everything from shamanism to psychic development, mediumship, and all those other things. And people can be experts at taking people into other realms if they've spent an entire lifetime doing this, uh, preferably with a mentor, somebody who's really training you for that, because it's the training just as much as it is for something else. So if you don't have some kind of training to take people into the depths, then you really need to have strict boundaries on what it is that you're doing, because you're going to make mistakes. And so the stricter your boundary, the less danger and problems you're probably going to create or have. Um, personally, because I know I've got a proclivity towards this and I've been studying Jungian psychology for over 50 years. Uh, I was in a group that met three times a month for over 20 years, um, doing deep study in Jungian psychology, but I'm not a trained psychoanalyst. So I have to be really careful because my tendency is to want to go deep. (laughs) Um, and that's not my professional Role. Um, so I don't do readings more often than once or twice a year. And I only do it twice a year if it's about a different subject, you know, something major has shifted or changed in a person's life. Hmm. Um, because if I did ongoing, regular, you know, weekly or even monthly readings for someone, it would start looking an awful lot like therapy. Yeah. And um, and I live in California. I can get sued for that and uh, even go to jail. So um, I have to keep really strict boundaries on what I do. Um, within that, I will, uh, I usually don't mention direct Jungian terms, except maybe the shadow, because almost everybody's familiar with that. Uh, but I don't go into a lot of the particulars of it. But I may be aware that something's triggered along those lines. You know, oh, there's a father issue, there's a mother issue. And for with the Jungian background and the mythology, I can maybe see, I can see the connections with the other cards and maybe get a sense of the myth that's being portrayed, which I might or might not mention. It depends on who it is. If it's a grocery store clerk, well, actually I've met some very interesting grocery store clerks (laughs) who knew a lot about psychology, but um, in general, if they're just wanting to work something out with a relationship and they want to know, you know, is he coming back to me? Um, They're, they're probably not going to want to get into that level. So I may be aware of these other levels, but I'm going to keep to the more mundane or I might mention, you know, um, this issue with your boss at work is probably a pattern that you've had. And it may be similar to, um, you know, a relationship with your father because there's a reversed emperor 
So obviously there's um, uh, problem areas uh, in the masculine going back to father type figures in your life that can carry through into bosses and uh, mentors and uh, older uh, men in your life for a man or a woman. Right. So creating yeah. a boundary here would mean that maybe you're pointing towards something without taking someone through a therapeutic process around that issue. Exactly. And I point it gently. You know, I don't, um, you know. It's not I, definitive, I but you're saying there there might be something here to look at. Yeah. 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 And then it might ring some bells with someone and, but you leave it at that. If that's the kind of boundary that you've established for that, that person in that reading. Yeah. And for somebody who obviously really wants and needs to go deeper, that there's, it's central. I've pointed out where there's, you know, a father issue that, you know, you say you've been in therapy, you will probably want to take this and I might give them one or two little hints, you know, talk to your therapist and explore this with your therapist, or you might be interested in take in looking deeper at this issue with a therapist, mm. um, you know, not as a heavy thing, but as a growth factor for yourself. Yeah. And then maybe even uh, having some suggestions for books to look at too. Oh yeah. yeah. I often have a suggestion for <laughs> books. Yeah, And there's so many self-development books that are really good out there that for people who want to look deeper, there's a lot of really good sources. And often a book that I've been reading fairly recently is just exactly, this is the synchronicity aspect, which is another Jungian term and concept that things that happen simultaneously are meaningfully related. And often I will have just read a book that is absolutely perfect for somebody that comes for a reading. Yeah, it happens. <laughs> nodding and, yeah. Or I happen to pick up a book that's been on my shelf for years. And as soon as I start reading, I go, okay, I couldn't have read this book two years ago and got it. But at this moment in time, I need to be reading this in order to continue my process of growth. And that happened to me recently. I just picked up this uh, little thin book by James Hollis, who's a Jungian psychoanalyst. Yes. And he did a series of these great little books uh, that were, I think, published out of the Toronto Young Society. And uh, they cover different subjects. But this one in particular is on the male shadow. And as I'm reading stuff, I'm just going, oh, my God, yes, 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 yes. Uh -huh. Talking about my life here and what I need to be looking at right now. Yeah, that was actually a central book for a couple of people that were in the Jung uh, study group that I was in. Hmm. And uh, yeah, two elderly gentlemen that went through kind of their whole life history based on looking at the ideas in, in Hollis's book on the uh, male shadow. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic stuff. Okay. Well, I love that. I really appreciate you talking about uh, establishing boundaries as a tarot reader. Um, and I think that's really clear that we can point to some issues that someone might want to look at or bring to their therapist or offer suggestions on books, but really thinking carefully about getting into the actual, the story or any kind of processing around that issue. That feels, uh, that feels like a really clear, easy boundary for me to follow. Yeah, and with certain individuals, they're already working at that level. And so you might find yourself fairly deep, even within a, a one-hour tarot reading. Um, 
you know, you have to trust yourself. And that's one of the things that intuition is all about. But intuition is learning over time, which creates um, neural connections that help you see patterns right away. And one of the ways that it works is your intuition says, go with this. So I'm going to go a little deeper with a particular person uh, because I, I realize that they're really ready for this kind of, um, you know, deep transformative change. Um, an example from a person who gave me permission to do it was a woman who had been sexually abused as a child and her family would not believe by a neighbor that was uh, almost like a family member. Um, and nobody in her family would believe it uh, for many years until finally the daughter of that person and a couple of the other people from the neighborhood girls who are now women um, said that it was so that they had gone through the same thing. And suddenly it was like, Oh my God. But this woman had ended up with these horrible backaches that doctors said they could find no solution for. So she had resolved a lot of the stuff, but she still would wake up almost every night in excruciating pain. And she had a feeling that it was connected with this and, and the long many years that nobody would believe her and, you know, all, all of this stuff. So she came for a reading and um, kept saying during the reading that, you know, I'm, I'm a Buddhist and I've gone through, you know, so much of this work and I know it's about forgiveness. And I've been trying, you know, all along to forgive this person. And the cards, I don't even remember the exact cards that came up, but they were pretty clear of no, you know, stop that being so compassionate and trying to forgive because something in you is not doing that. And so actually we ended up creating a ritual and, and Jung was very much about how do you take an active imagination? How do you take the work with these things and turn it into um, an art project or some kind of experiential thing or a dance or, or something? And so, you know, I said, go out in the woods and scream at this person and, you know, beat things. And um, there was a, a a group online that she was with it where she tried to be the compassionate voice. And I said, no, you know, scream out how terrible, how awful it was and how much you hate him. And she did it. And I said, you know, and I'm pretty sure I said, if you do it, you'll find that at a certain point, the compassion is going to rise naturally once you empty this all out. Yeah. And from that day, actually she's, and it's been a couple of years now, two years at least. Uh, she hasn't had any of those backaches. Hmm. Not a single one. She did go out in the woods and scream, and she did go online and scream, and she did, yeah, and she just let all the hate and, you know, agony out and has turned everything around. So that was a case where I would not normally have gone that deep with someone into something that sensitive. But um, actually, I knew her, and I knew members of her family, and she was ready. Yeah, and that's yeah. what the intu my intuition was saying, and that she was so open, and so her own body language was like, yeah, saying that it, it was the right time and the right place mm -hmm. for that next piece of this process she'd been working through for so many years. Yeah. It sounds like she'd exhausted all these other possibilities and it's like, well, let's just see what the tarot has to say. Maybe it could show us something that 
you haven't uncovered yet. Yeah. I think um, maybe the danger here is the ability to discern what is intuition uh, and what is maybe the ego when you're working with someone and, and you get the sense that, okay, we can go really deep here, that there would need to be an ability to discern between these parts of yourself and, uh, and to make sure that it's not, you're not looking for some kind of egoic gratification, like, wow, I can really take people deep and, and I'm a therapist and I'm a (laughs) shaman or something, you know? Uh, how do you work with that? Is there, uh, well, if, if you consider yourself a shaman, hopefully you've been through some pretty deep training, and that training will actually focus in part on knowing yourself. Sure. I, I mean, I just use that as an example, but like, yeah. it, it's so common now for people to jump into reading tarot or astrology and just say, well, I do intuitive readings yeah. because I'm an intuitive, <laughs> and that's the credential, right? I know my pet peeve. (laughs) Yeah. Tell me about it. Intuition and psychic ability are two different things, and they are on a continuum, so you can't always tell exactly where one uh, leaves off and the other one starts, but they are different. And uh, people who are psychic um, get very, very specific information um, it, it can be emotional, it can be uh, visual, it can be auditory, it can be all these different forms. But um, it's there's nothing in the environment that would give you a clue to those. So nothing in the person sitting in front of you, nothing in the story they're telling you. Intuition works through the senses. So psychic ability is extrasensory. It's outside of whatever you're picking up. Intuition, you're getting it from the environment. And you're getting it from the reaction of the person, their voice. If you're online or on a phone, then you're, you're hearing it. Um, or it may even be from past experience you're, you're getting it. Like I said, there's uh, through experience, through learning, education, um, all these things, you, you set up these neural pathways where you instantaneously recognize a pattern. Um, whether it's your own ego, um, if it's if you're getting pleasure out of it in terms of, oh, look how great I saw that, and oh, I must be really good, there's a real danger there. Because there's, um, both with intuition and psychic, there's something just is. And that idea of compassion goes along with it. It's a compassionate thing, and it has nothing to do with you. So every time you feel like that rush of pleasure of, oh, I got it, or, you know, I uh, figured it out, or, you know, I can fix it, that's ego I. Mm -hmm. And when that steps in, there's a danger that Mm -hmm. you're falling into your own stuff and not being totally, completely open to the person in the moment and the situation that's in the moment. Uh, One of the ways that I personally deal with it is that if I get an insight um, that, you know, something has occurred, uh, whether it's intuition or or psychic, and and it tends to be more intuition with me much more, um, that it's, um, I try to create a space for the person themselves to see it. Because I do interactive readings, which again is a Jungian technique, where I ask the person questions about the cards, 
open-ended questions, you know, um, you know, simply describe the card, uh, you know, what is this object that's on the card and what can, what, uh, can it be used for those kinds of open-ended questions? Mm -hmm. Um, and the person themselves reveals the information. So I try to create a space where the person will come to their own realization. And when I hear that in their voice um, or their demeanor, then I often ask them to repeat it until they hear it. Mm. And the person will then come to, you know, might say, oh, this is really about such and such. And I go, uh, yeah, that's what it looks like here. And, you know, great insight, fabulous. Um, so I'm, I keep building on their insights. That's my technique for, um, it, it serves a dual purpose. For one thing, it stays true to the person and it's their insight and their intuition that's bringing it up. And the other side is that I don't get into those ego places because it's not me, it's, it's them. Yeah, yeah, I really love that. And they're not all putting it on me because how many times do you hear somebody say, oh, I went to my tarot reader and they told me I would meet the, uh, my soulmate in the next six months or uh, you know, that I should or shouldn't do this. And I don't want anybody either putting that on me because that's disempowering to them. My tarot reader told me to. That's disempowering, and I don't want that. I want them to say, you know, I figured out that this is what I need to do next. Yeah, I think it's a really tricky thing to get into any kind of fortune telling anyway. I, myself, personally, I would, I would much rather focus on uh, helping people to I'm helping to provoke those insights for the person, you know, it's like insight into their, into their life, I think is the most important thing, like what's happening in, in the here and now. Um, yeah, it's a lot of responsibility if you're going to start predicting the future. Yeah, and there is a time and a place for it in, a, you know, a limited sense. But I find that most prediction that I do, and Jung even acknowledged this, is that it's based on that pattern that you see. Right, and but so then it's, it's a matter of choices almost, right? Yeah, and it leads, there's potential choices or the change in vibrational level of going from, um, you know, a literal accident to, you know, a metaphoric um, opening up or, or a metaphoric shock type of thing rather than a physical shock. Right, like those two reads of the tower. Like it could yeah. correspond to a catastrophic, catastrophic event or some internal apocalypse that allows you to see things in a new way or be completely destroyed by it. Like it's your choice. Yeah. Yeah. And you can help the person see how something that seems apocalyptic can actually be a, a point of tremendous insight and deep meaning in their life and therefore transform. Um, I've got a, a phrase that I came to when people have asked over the years, what is tarot for? And I say, it's to help you meet whatever comes in the best possible way. Hmm. So it's not to um, find the best solution but to be able to give uh, meaning and a sense of lesson and opportunity to whatever comes along. And if you can meet it with that kind of perspective, 
then um, you're probably going to make much much better choices and make the situation into um, a much more enriching experience than if you just are hit over the head with it. You know, if you haven't, uh, if somebody says, oh, and Tarot, you're, it looks like there might be an accident and you go, oh my God, you know, what's going to happen? How do I avoid the accident? Or if you say, you know, if there's an accident, what is it trying to teach you? Is there a way you can learn that without having to go through the accident? Or if you do go through some kind of accident or something that it becomes a major meaningful point in your life. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the lives of famous people, they've had all kinds of tragedies and accidents and things happen to them. And often those are turning points in their life where they make vows to go in a direction for which they later became famous. And they did something with it. And so you don't want to take those away. Mm -hmm. That's not your role. It's yeah. to help the person meet it in the best way to make something of it and not be destroyed by it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's great. I really love that. You know, I could, um, I could listen to you talk about tarot all day long. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I could talk about it all day long. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. I don't want to take up too much of your time though. And, um, but I know that you're coming to Montreal soon for the, Tarot Conference. Yes. I'm wondering, what, what are you going to yes. be talking about here? Oh, I need to look at my list right now because I've got a bunch of different tarot uh, things coming up. So Montreal, I'm talking, uh, doing two things. One is, um, oh, no, the Montreal one, I'm just doing the tarot for yourself. So I'm going to be focusing on the benefits of reading tarot for yourself and what techniques you use in order to accrue those benefits uh, rather than just falling into, um, you know, old habits and patterns of thinking, which is kind of the tendency. If you're pessimistic, then you tend to read cards pessimistically. How can you transform that? How can you change that and learn what your own processes are for um, you know, looking at yourself in your life and begin to recognize which ones are helpful and which ones are not as helpful and, and uh, so that you can, uh, yeah, learn how to see yourself better. Hmm. Yeah. Great. What else are you teaching about these days? Um, I'm also doing workshops, of course, on, on Jung and, um, and in London, I'll be doing something looking at all the sevens in the uh, tarot. So the major arcana and the minor arcana sevens, um, just as kind of a, an example of how you can go much more deeply into the symbolism of the numbers and see them as interconnected. So, you know, manifesting in those uh, four realms in the minor arcana, fire, earth, air, and water, or intuition, um, feeling, sensation, and thinking, um, you know, how uh, each of those is uh, a different opportunity. But uh, going back to the major arcana, you've got the core themes that uh, apply in each of those different areas. So uh, it, they really become the, uh, the gifts and the challenges of each of those energies mm. so for instance for you being a five you can look at all the fives which are very challenging in the in the rider Waite smith deck in the um you know western version of the tarot and uh, or british and american version and um yeah if you look at the fives then they become gifts and opportunities for developing those central themes in your life 
Hmm, great. Yeah. Okay. Well, if people want to find out more, I'll I'll supply a link to your website. Yeah, my blog and, has got tons of material in it. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of material there, um, and you've also got some online courses and videos available. It's just you've created so much material that uh, it's a wealth of information on your site. So I'll send people there. Yeah, globalspiritualstudies.com is the main place that my courses are offered. Okay, great. All right, anything else that you want to leave people with before we sign off? um, Well, a very basic thing that I use in every reading in some way is when in doubt about the meaning of a card, simply describe it very literally, no symbolism, no metaphors. Just describe it and then repeat it in the first person, present tense, and you'll probably start hearing certain themes that are really important. Ah, right. Like, so put yourself as the figure in the card. First of all, simply describe it. Yeah. And then repeat as closely as you can as an I statement, and you'll find yourself continuing, you know, starting to take it into more metaphoric levels. You know, I am a knight riding on a horse. Oh, (laughs) okay. If I'm a knight riding on a horse, what's this knightly thing that I'm doing? What's the horse I'm riding in this moment in my life? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks a lot for that. Simply with just the simple description. And if you skip that, you miss a lot of the visceral level, which is teaching you so much because as soon as you think of a night writing, your body sort of goes into that and there's certain information in that too. Mm -hmm. Well, great stuff. And I really, I'm looking forward to your book on uh, Jung and Tarot. That's going to be a good one. Yeah, yeah. Actually, it's going to, I hope the title will be A Jungian Approach to Tarot. Who knows what the publisher is going to do? <laughs> I think there's already a book called The Jungian Approach to Tarot, no? Uh, no, there's Jungian Tarot by Sally Nichols. I wrote okay. the, uh, it was just republished. I don't think it's, I don't think it's a Jungian approach. I should look and see if there's a subtitle on that, but there's not an actual title. It's Okay. Yeah. Great. Well, really looking forward to it. And I want to thank you for uh, taking the time to speak with us today. Yeah. Well, thank you for inviting me. I had fun. If you enjoyed this conversation, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or sharing it on social media. If you're looking for support on your medicine path, you can become a Patreon subscriber and have access to hours of yoga practice resources, podcast extras, and a lot more. You can find out more at patreon.com forward slash medicine path. If you'd like more personal support, you can book an online session with me at brianjames.ca. Thanks so much for listening. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face. Until next time we meet on the medicine path. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. 
And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.